0: I'm Welcome to Launch Left, an intentional space for art and activism, a podcast, a label, a launchpad for left-of-center artists. Today's guest is Thurston Moore. We'll be talking about his new record, By the Fire, which is phenomenal, and I hope you get it and listen to it and love it as much as I do. I have a long history of loving Sonic Youth and Thurston's work since I was 16 when I heard Daydream Nation and Evil before that, and it changed my life. And then I had the incredible Good Fortune... Alec is Attic opened for Sonic Youth on my 18th birthday in Miami, Florida, which was a milestone as well. So I'm super excited to speak to Thurston. One last thing don't forget to rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. And now, welcome to the show, Thurston Moore. Thank you for being on the show. Your record is spectacular.
1: Thank you. We met a long time ago, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So we played together in Miami. Remember that?
0: I do it was my yeah. 18th birthday it's hard to forget that's right
1: oh my God that's so funny I totally re- I totally remember that gig I didn't re- I guess I remember it was your birthday yeah, there was something going on in that respect, yeah
0: <laughs> I remember that because I was like already a huge fan of Sonic Youth Daydream Nation came out when I was sixteen and it changed like how I felt about music and yeah so for me to get to open on my eighteenth was like oh so I remember it very well. I think I've bugged Kim a number of times about that. Um. That's
1: so cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I re- My mother was at that show. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, just I have like I I grew up in I didn't grow up, but I was born in Coral Gables, and I lived in Miami for South Miami for a while before we moved north. And so she was down there because she had her her sister was down there, and they all were they were all at that show. I remember. That and it was kind true. of it was when Miami Beach was really. Um, a a different vibe then it was it was like really uh kind of um how they say in england really dodgy Uh, (laughs) yeah a lot of police a lot of drug dealing going on um just not a pleasant atmosphere um you know eventually it got really moneyed and sort of it changed but uh Yeah, that's so funny. Oh, it's good to see you. (laughs) I
0: know it's only been like thirty years or something.
1: It's been a while, yeah.
0: (laughs) But uh, you collaborated a little with. I know Steve Shelley is was in part of this record, right? Yeah, Steve
1: is. Yeah, I always play with Steve when I get a chance. I mean, he lives in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is kind of a long distance uh, music affair we have, and um, you know, it's made it even more difficult to sort of play with musicians from across the water how that travel restrictions are so in place. Um, but that, the music I played with Steve, um, on this record was done during a session I did for a record called rock and roll consciousness a couple of years ago. And this was a piece of music that I wanted to use on that record, but it was just too unwieldy. It was too, it was too like, kind of big and heavy for that record. And I sort of held to it and, um, and it it worked in this sequence. So that's the only song Steve plays on. I I usually use a drummer here in London that I like called Jem Dalton who plays on most of this record. And Deb plays on everything. I've been playing Deb is great. I've I've been playing with Deb for um every, I I've been living here about 8 years. Just about yeah, you know, 7 or 8 years and uh I met Deb pretty early on. I mean I knew Deb from my Bloody Valentine. The sonic youth and my bloody valentine would do um shows together through the years. One of their very first early shows was supporting Sonic Youth at a little club in Glasgow, Scotland in the the mid eighties. And it was this cool, yeah, it was this cool little gig that we were playing and it was being promoted by the bass player, um, Douglas Hart of Jesus and Mary Chain, who were kind of, they were also kind of new at that point and we really liked them we kind of um connected with them when we were over there over here <laughs> and douglas put this gig on in glasgow which is where they all came from anyway and he drove up this new band that he was friends with my bloody valentine to play this gig so i remember that very very well i could still see them like deb was deb must have been like 19 years old you know and, and uh and they were just like a a jangly kind of indie pop band. They, they weren't what they became. And what they became was something else entirely with, within like a year or so. And I think they were really kind of intrigued by what was going on with bands like us and Dinosaur Jr. who had come over. And, and so Kevin Shields really amped it up and sort of... I think he remodulated his focus of what that band was and they were spectacular. I mean, and they were really distinctive. They didn't sound anything like Sonic Youth or Donuts for Junior. They sounded like something entirely else. And they were beautiful. That that first record like that was so great. And um, cause I remember reading like a reviews of my bloody Valentine a year or so later after that gig and, and the reviews were like these like, this is the most important band in London right now. And their gigs are just incredible experiences. And I was like, what? There's like a jangly pop band. I was like staring at their feet. But then I got it. And then I got it when I heard them. And then they came over to New York and they, um and they played all these little places in New York at that time. We just hung out with them and they were just great. So, so you just, re-
0: you've known them since then, then since the eighties. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I didn't really know Deb that well. I mean, I mean, I was more, I was very friendly with Kevin and I knew Belinda and they were kind of like, you know, the power couple of the band. And so that was sort of that connection. And I didn't, I didn't, um I knew Deb, but I never really had much of a, um, a repartee with her. But uh, when I moved here, I started playing with this guitar player, James Sedward. So I continued to play with, um, and I was talking about trying to locate someone to play bass. And he said, and he was friends with Deb and he said, well, Deb's not doing anything, you know, and um, I just thought that was an incredible idea. I, I didn't think she would actually um, be up for it. I don't know, you know, but I invited her over to my little flat and we had a bottle of wine and we talked into the night and then we started a band together <laughs> and that was few years ago. And we still, we still play together and, it's a really cool group.
0: I guess my question out of all of that is like you were just doing what you were doing and, and Sonic Youth was born in that way that like made such a big influence on so many people for a long time now. At the time when you were a kid, start you know, when you guys were starting it, do you feel like you knew you'd be where you are now where you're in London and can live <laughs> and make records? And-
1: no, I mean I used to have aspirations to possibly um well coming into new york and, and and playing with different musicians in the late 70s uh, the idea was like the the biggest big time you could get was like a saturday night at cbgb's if you could ever attain such a thing um and i think at that age you don't really sort of think too far ahead i mean i don't i don't really think musicians and artists in their late teens and early 20s really have future vision so much. I think you really are sort of like living day to day and you, you don't, you don't really have that shelf life feeling that you get later on in life where it's like, um, where time becomes so precious. And, and I, you know, so I, I don't think any of us as we, as the four of us got together, well, I should say the three of us, cause it was mostly me, Kim and Lee. And then, um, you know, we had a succession of drummers, um, And it settled on Steve Shelley, but uh, at first it was Bob Burt. And, you know, when I came to New York, um, for me, it was just wanting to be in a band and playing music that I was really intrigued by. I was always sort of drawn towards what was happening more on the margins of like the rock scene, which I was, which I, didn't have any issues with i didn't have any issues with like the contemporary rock scene of like the beatles or the stones or even like yes or the almond brothers band or emerson like, or what was happening in the 70s i thought there was great contemporary music in the 70s you know from bowie to you know um you know to whatever the the stones were doing at that time and or what paul mccartney was doing which john lennon was doing and Almond Brothers Band, all these bands, yes, and all the, I, I loved it all. But I was really curious about um, what was happening when I saw photographs of, like, you know, Iggy Pop, you know, spray painted silver and standing on top of the audience's upstretched hands, and like, what is that? Like, what does that sound like? We we're seeing pictures of um, the MC5, and we're seeing pictures of Captain Beefheart. You know, thinking, like, what does that person sound like? And being really curious in this music that was uh, rather subversive. And and it, it, it always kind of paid off as soon as I would locate the documents. You know, you play those records. They were just so unlike anything else that was being played commercially. And I was really drawn towards it. And I was drawn towards people who would write about it. The writers were as important to me as the musicians, like uh, Lester Bangs and, and Patti Smith was writing about a lot of this before patty made a record she was i just remember her as a as a byline in certain magazines and i thought she her byline was cool because it was always lowercase and then when you saw a picture of her like a early 70s cream magazine she was like yeah i mean she was like this androgynous um wonder you know and her poetry was really cool and And then she made a record. She made a seven inch in 74, 75. And I remember sending away for that. Like, what does a rock writer sound like making (laughs) making rock? And it was so stark and raw and minimal. And it was like a recitation on it. And Tom Verlaine was playing a scratchy guitar. And it was just like completely unlike all the grandiose music that was happening everywhere. And it was really, it sounded completely urban at a time when urban music wasn't really um, the thing in music culture. It was all about James Taylor and going back to the country and, and, and uh, leaving the city. The city wasn't cool. The city was bad. But, you know, but Patty was the city, and she was like, that was the sound of and New York Dolls was the sound of the city. Or hearing the Stooges and knowing it was the sound of the city. And so I was, that, to me, was like a big change. It was like this kind of new heralding of, like, what the sound of the city, the urban was, as opposed to the, the rural, you know, the Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, Joni Mitchell, the kind of the glory of the rural communal, get away from the expectations of standard society. And so that that was a big change. And so I, I, I went to New York looking for that primarily. And, I met up with some students who came out of Rhode Island school of design and they were the next class after like talking heads people. And I started playing with them and I even got my first day job uh, at a furniture at a kind of a modernist furniture place in midtown Manhattan. And it was a shipping clerk job in the basement. But I I took this job because uh, Chris France, the drummer of the talking heads had it and he left because his band was getting too busy and so one of these guys i was playing with said there's this job opening that chris had i never met chris for instance. to this day i never met him um and uh but i did take his job
0: you know <laughs> <Yeah. So> i <laughs> like I <laughs> <laughs> you took his um, lead on a good pre <laughs> job you
1: know <laughs> yeah so i just well, I, you know and then to, and I, I would see all those bands and you know I was really, it was a really interesting sort of dichotomy because there was like this really sort of like um, uh, just typical traditional rock and roll band, like the Heartbreakers and uh, even the Patti Smith group was just like, they were just like a rock and roll group. They just they just happened to have this singer who was just completely, uh, you know, amazing and unusual. Um, you know, Blondie, I mean, they were just playing rock and roll but, but at the same time, there was all this otherness that was going on in groups like the Talking Heads, or even a band like Suicide, which was just two guys playing like, you know, um, just overamped keyboard uh, noise and and just, um, so those two things kind of like really sort of for me were uh, it was all about how to how to start a band that sort of um, kind of unified those 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 two things that really traditional kind of rock and roll thing. I mean, the Ramones were like a traditional rock and roll band, but they were so so completely um, unique, you know. And a lot of it had to do with just because of their um, their not having the traditional technique of other bands. They 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 kind of use their limitations for this incredible performance, you know, and that was really inspiring. They were so minimal at a, t- and at a time when minimalism was like this, you know, uh, strand of, of uh, discipline that was happening in the art world, you know, it's like stripping away of the effluvia of, of the work and getting to the essence of it and sort of locating it and sort of just displaying it. And, um, you getting rid of yeah yeah but i don't think the ramones were like so cool. going to like galleries and looking at minimalist art right. Right.
0: <laughs> no i don't either but it's it's interesting i didn't put the, that that's a cool correlation that you know that during that time that was something happening yeah. in in art and they probably didn't but it was almost like that thing where you pick up through the you know yeah the the ether like how everyone kind of picks up the same resonant frequency sometimes, but in different ways uses it in art, you know, you might not even know it. I find that always very interesting. That idea of just sort of like putting your antenna out and picking up what's happening, but doing it your way, you know, it's
1: very true. I mean, it's a bit of a metaphysic thing. And so it's like the information is just like, it's, it's really magical and and, then it happens through history quite a bit. And so it was, it was, in retrospect, it was completely curious to think about that band coexisting with like all this other kind of minimalist tendency that was going on. I thought they were like, when I first heard about them, to me, they were coming out of like a glam thing, you know, they were just like, as if they were like the Bay City Rollers or something, you know, cause glam and glam rock and glitter rock was always this kind of leapfrogging back over the, 60s hippie world and going right into like 50s kind of like you know the the beginnings and like the genesis of rock and trying to get to this kind of primalcy of it and uh you know roxy music and bowie did that you know it was like this kind of 50s thing that they would do and uh i thought the ramones were doing that like you know the leather jackets and the t-shirts and the, the ripped jeans you know they were a gang you know they were sort of like it was like kind of like marlon brando or something. But, you know, but they were kind of, they were, but, but they were like dweebs, you know, <laughs> and there was, it was and it was high concept, you know, they were like, they all had the same land, last, last name or something, they might as well have been Slade or something. Um But the fact that they just like, they, they played the way they played, which is like, that's all they could do was like play like these kind of three or four chords and different variants of, (laughs) it was just kind of great.
0: So great though. Like so infectious that music and just, you felt the aliveness of it, like regardless of their lack of ability or, you know, it it still felt like something really important.
1: Yeah, it was because it was so unique and it was like, it was really funny and it was fun. And it just like, it really was just like shocking. It was amazing. I mean, there's that famous Lou Reed cassette that you could hear that Danny Fields had made when he played uh, the Ramones cassette for him the first time. And Lou Reed is just like, this it. It's all over. They just, they've discovered, you know, (laughs) they've discovered it all. Here it is. This is the most beautiful thing ever, you know. It's in, you can hear a little bit of it in the, um, there's a documentary about Danny Fields um, called Danny Says. That's kind of really cool. I think it's in there. I think that's where I heard it.
0: Are you like? Would you call yourself a, a, a rock and roll historian of the of the music <laughs> you like?
1: I'm super obsessive. I mean, I've been writing a lot about like that era it, and of the '70s going into the '80s and being a teenager and sort of getting engaged with the uh, the music scene of the downtown New York diaspora and and how Sonic Youth sort of formed in '80 80, '81 and came out of that. And I've been writing a lot about the a lot about that lately, because since I've had all this time at home, and I've never really had uh, downtime for ages, and so I I just was able to sort of do this, and and so I created this this manuscript called Sonic Life that I wrote, and I, I really do get into the details. I, I, I'm really interested in like the the documents that kind of inspire and inform people at a young age that they that um, defines their their vocation for the rest of their lives so talking about say like that first patty smith seven inch or the first ramones album or just all those initial documents that were coming out from like 76 until like 79 80 and the sonic youth as a band starts around late 80 into 81 and, um so I I, sp- I spent an inordinate amount of time discussing like the significance of, of those records in the magazines and the fanzines and the in the literature and the and what was happening just like in in the city of New York I talk a lot about the environment of like the, what kind of city it was and so there's a lot of geography as, as well <laughs> and um, I just thought I would lay into it and just talk a lot about that
0: when when is that coming out or are you keeping oh i don't know
1: whenever they let us out let us all back into the pool i don't know this whole lockdown thing it's like a prison term like like i mean that's a prison term isn't it Lockdown. maybe we should change the word president and turn it into warden
0: hey i have another writing question about you though um you teach still sometimes at naropa is that right which Mm -hmm. is something in the university yeah so i've heard a lot about that for you know that
1: plays well, Alan Ginsberg and Ann Waldman were the founders of the uh, Summer Writing Workshop that is part of Naropa University. At that time, it was in 74 they founded it. And it was it was the Naropa Institute then. I think it got accredited to be a university some years later. Um, and the, the school itself was founded by this, this Buddhist uh, practitioner, scholar, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Yeah,
0: that's based- the coolest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He and so he, would, he was, he was like, like he had, he had this, yeah, he had this thing called crazy wisdom, which was yeah. like this much sort of, um, it's a bit more of an open idea, uh, or I guess idea of, 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 of how to be a, a practicing Buddhist in the USA, <laughs> especially at that time in the seventies. Um, and he, he, he was, and he was Ginsburg's uh, guy, his Yogi, uh, I think they met in new york just by chance like crossing the street and um and then ginsburg became a devotee to him and either alan asked or he asked alan to uh, start a, a a school of poetry there and they did and it kind of through the years it became more established and and somewhat disciplined. I think it was a pretty much a wild place to go to, like in the late seventies, it was really open. But the correct, but the um, the, uh, the the teachers there, um, my God, it was like William Burroughs, Kathy Acker, <laughs> yeah, Cecil Taylor. I mean, everybody they, they knew in the New York scene and just around the world that like these these really, they would give them teaching jobs at the school. And can you imagine being on a campus with, with like, with, with, with these teachers, I mean, it must have been amazing. So I was always, I was always really um curious about it. I mean, I never really went to the Poetry Project that much um, in the '70s and '80s because I was just preoccupied with what I was doing. But I, I lived near it, and I knew about it, and I had this idea that that's what I was going to do when I came to New York: is like, you know, like be a writer and 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 hang out with. the the poets, but I would see Ted Berrigan and all these people just all the time on the streets. But I, I, um, they were all, they were also all going to CBGB. And, um, so you would see Allen Ginsberg at at a lot of gigs, just jumping on stage and and chanting and playing his harmonium. And, um, and I remember like seeing Eileen Miles there when early on and St. Mark's poetry project had a fire in the, Late seventies, and he did a he did a, like a week long benefit at CBGB, and I remember like being there and seeing all those poets there. But they were kind of older people. I was like twenty something years old. They were kind of older. They'd been a, they'd been around a while, and so you know, um, for me, that that probably is what kind of gave me a bit of a distance from going there. Like you know, these these guys were too experienced, and and um, I was. Yeah, I was like a fawn. <laughs> I but probably would have damaged me if I went there. I don't know.
0: Yeah. But now you you do teach a little at that. Yeah, at that, what is now an accredited university? What used to be Crazy Wisdom had Crazy
1: Wisdom. <laughs> I and Waldman came up to Northampton when we were living in Northampton, Massachusetts, and Byron Coley, the writer, and myself were doing. Um, these kind of uh, salons at this, this book and record space that we had called uh, the new grass center for, for the arts. And um, so we'd have lots of different underground basement noise people come up or, or folky people come up and play. And, and we'd have poetry readings. We have Gerard Malanga come up and Ann Waldman came up and we kind of had met, but I didn't, we didn't really know each other. And she saw my my uh, library, which and I was I had spent years archiving like post war underground mimeo poetry, and just trying to figuring out the links between like the New York scene and the West Coast scene and the and the Midwest scene around Cleveland and the Canadian scene, and all of these documents that to me were like punk rock records. You know, they were artist made and they were just used to sort of exchange hands so people would learn from each other you know like how like what contemporary poetics was and so i became really super into collecting this stuff because it was disappearing from the culture and i would go on tour like crisscrossing usa and i would go to every bookstore in every college town and go to the poetry section which was always in the back in the dust with a cat sleeping on top of it and that's where all these like these staple poetry mimeos were you know for pennies per pound and i amassed this huge collection so ann saw this and in one second she glanced at it and then she said i want you to teach at the school and i said well i don't i, I don't teach <laughs> i mean i i um i mean my father was a teacher i kind of know what i know what the education scene is but i um i was caught surprised but I, it was that was about seven eight years ago at and um so it was at this really interesting time in my life and i uh i went and it was fantastic it was really beautiful it's a great place and it's really spiritual place uh i've met such wonderful people there and has been like a, a a real mentor for me through the years i was supposed to be there this summer but of course that didn't happen and you you know you create your own curriculum I would. I would teach like usually, sort of like uh, you know the recorded works of Allen Ginsberg, like Allen Ginsberg, his connection with uh, you know making recordings and records, and his uh, connection with like music. I did the same thing with William Burroughs. I I talked a lot about sort of the 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 poetry connection between St. Mark's Poetry Project and CBGB. So there's a lot of talking about Richard Hell and Patty and. Tom Verlaine and, and that, you know, something like that. And then, I, and then I did a class that was all about radical poetics, of like um, like Anna, Mendels- Anna Mendelssohn, who was a poet, who was part of the Angry Brigade here in London in the early 70s. Um, it was, but, you know, I mean, I got to h- hang out and meet amazing people. Like, uh, you know, Amiri Baraka would be there. It was just fantastic. I would, if I, you know, if I, to me, Boulder, Colorado, is, I, I think, if the time ever comes where I relocate to the USA again, it would be top of my list. I love, I love Boulder. I think it's really cool.
0: Yeah, that is a very progressive town. Yeah, and and it's just like in the most beautiful setting that feels like it's not going to be moved as much by fire, earthquake, and famine as other places. <laughs>
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to be doomsday. Um, hey, and also we might be letting um, Stella from Big Joni in.
1: Eva and I put her record out, Big Joni's record out the l- last year, and it's it's a it's sensational. We first saw them like somewhat by accident. They were they were opening up for this band called The X, old friends of mine from Amsterdam, anarcho punk band, for want of a better term. <laughs> And so we went to see the X, and Big Johnny was, was on the bill. And we were just like completely blown away. And we asked them if they, you know, had it. We went to the merch table. They were hanging out there and we asked them if they had any cassettes or seven inches or T-shirts or stickers. They had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. And they said they had recorded a session, but they, they, did, they were at a loss of how to put it out. Um, so we put it out.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, from what I've watched and listened to, it's so good and so fun and yeah, they Yeah, they're, they're alive, great. You know? Yeah, yeah. Do you put a lot of different artists out or is it kind of a fledgling?
1: No, it's, it's, it was created just to support putting the, the Big Johnny record out. And I had put a record out around the same time called Rock and Roll Consciousness that I did on a label called uh, Fiction which is like the Cure's label. And, uh, and that was cool. I, I like doing that. But I think when it came time to do another record, it really was of the mind, like just keep it completely independent and in-house and DIY. Um, it's it's become more apparent that that is just the way to work in, in the music business right now. Yep. Um, so, I, which I don't have any issue with, you know. Um, All right. It's, it's nice to sort of have people doing things for you and be catered to, but it's also nice to have everything within your own control and not having this, you have nobody to point the finger at except for yourself kind of thing when, when doing things.
0: Because you're kind of always been a bit left center that, that it's an easier transition for artists who are already thinking outside the box than for the yeah. you know, that we're kind of part of a machine. Business. Oh yeah, totally.
1: Totally. I mean, we work with a, you know, we work with a, a manufacturer distributor right, called car, car, uh, Cargo Records. So, yeah, they're I mean,
0: great. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I've worked with them before. I used to do Ecstatic uh, Peace as a music label when I was living in the States for a number of years. And I I would use Cargo here in the UK. So it was it it was my partner Eva's idea to do this label, and I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! It's you know, it it, it costs a little bit of coin to do a record label. You can't just like it's not like making a fanzine or something." And so I um I uh, connected her with Car- the people at Cargo who I remember working with, and they were just great. They were still still cool, and I really liked them. And so we've been dealing with them. They did my last record last year. Well, it wasn't a record. It was a record. But it was actually three CDs in a box. I, it wasn't it wasn't on vinyl because it didn't fit. And um and it was only three songs, but they were so long they had to Talk go on a CD each. Talk about Big Joni. We are talking about Big Jelly. Oh my Big oh Joni. We Talk about Big Jelly. Stop talking about yourself. <laughs> So it all started when I was five years old, and I had this vision that I was going to be a big no wave superstar. And now we got, (laughs) well, Estella's not here yet. We're waiting for her.
0: Oh, she's in the waiting room, Chris?
1: She's in the waiting room. Bring her out.
0: Bring her in. Well, it's Estella from Big Johnny. Hey,
1: Big Johnny had a had a, a bit of an existence before Stella joined, right?
2: Yeah, so I yeah. think I joined after, like, they'd already released their first single and first EP. But um, I'd actually, like, I'd played some of the same shows as Big Joanie, but in different bands, kind of on the DIY scene before I joined the bands.
0: How did music find
2: you?
1: Stella? you take that one. I've been talking okay. too much.
2: well I feel like yeah I did mention it to Thurston earlier today actually but um my family was always quite into music like I have very early memories of being at home and my dad playing all his old records in the living room and stuff and um yeah like my parents and one of my sisters was always they like all played instruments and everything So I got sent off to piano lessons when I was, like, four and just kind of started from there and then kind of took up various instruments. Um, I don't know if they do it in the States, here in the UK, like, when you get to year six, I think you're about ten, like, everybody, um, it might have been earlier than that, but everybody goes to a phase where they make you play the recorder. So we did that at school. Uh And then after that, I played the clarinet. And then I thought I was going to go on and learn to play saxophone. But like I started listening to this alternative rock like radio station. And like that was it at like 13. I was like, oh no, I'm getting a guitar. I'm not like, forget saxophone. I'm not doing that. So I got an electric guitar. And yeah, later down the line, um, when I first started playing in bands, eventually someone just asked if I'd play bass in their band. So I started doing that. And at some point um some of my friends wanted to start a Riot Girl band and they needed a drummer and I didn't play drums, but I said I'd join and play them anyway. So then I started <laughs> drumming. So it was kind of always always there and I've always had an interest in music. Like I used to write about it at uni as like one of the music editors paper and then I've worked in music venues. And, yeah, I learned to do live sound um, in a venue in London. So it was kind of just always there in some form anyway.
0: Very cool. And what about you, Thurston? How did music find you? Like, what was that first moment for you where you were like, ah, oh, music, that's going to be it, what I do?
2: It was
1: not too dissimilar. You know, my father was, um, he, he was a, a music teacher he played piano in the house all the time and he was definitely it was just classical music that he he was always playing so i kind of reacted i was reactionary to that so I kind of you know um the least classical music i can get involved with i think was sort of the idea uh, but there was always, i mean because of him there was always music in our household and and his mother my grandmother was also she was like a society pianist in in, in south florida and so we grew up in this household where we were kind of uh, expected to take piano lessons. So we were sat at the piano. And, you know, when all your friends were kind of outside playing, you were like taking piano lessons and you're just like this last thing you wanted to do. But I kind of gleaned enough um, to, you know, take me through the years. And then I have, I have a, a, an older brother who's five years older and he brought an electric guitar into the house. that changed everything and he brought records into the house he like i was born in 58 so when i was like you know like five or six years old like in the early 60s 63 was when louis louis came out by the kingsman i remember him bringing that home as a as a little kid and playing louis louis on my father's like old console you know like in the bedroom and that to me broke the broke everything open i was just like that sound that kind of that was punk rock you know it was like the kingsmen and that stayed with me forever you know and um, yeah so that's 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 that
0: very cool um, also i meant to ask you what's your form of activism
1: i think putting a record out to me is always a political move i mean you are just i mean it's 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 cuz you're you it's an exchange with socially it's public And it's inherently political, you know, so there's a certain responsibility there for me when I putting records out, I always think about what you're putting out has to be really, um, you know, something that is a, a, a a dialogue, a debate, you know, and, and, um, of sorts. I mean, it could be anything. It could be just sort of love songs or it could be like hardcore protest music or anything in between, but it's just that kind of, it's an offering. So it's sort of like, it's putting, to me it's like putting sort of a conscientious kind of language out there that uh, in a a world of so much kind of manipulated and and, uh, chatter that's sort of driven by like you know, all these degrees of ambition that kind of um, are overpowered by this kind of, uh, this, this idea of control and greed. And so I think it's really important to put these records out, you know. I mean, when we put Big Johnny's record out, we you know, the, the one thing that we got back from that more than anything was just like so many people were happy and joyful that this record came out. And that to me was like completely political, you know, that was like, so I, you know, I, I think there's a great dignity into in, in people who uh, uh, put their work out there for the world to hear. And, you know, in, in, in a space that is so, so, so rammed with like distortion of, 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 of uh, ideologies that are just all about ego. Yeah. You know?
0: And Estella, is there something you're working on right now that you want to share?
2: Uh, well, I feel like, yeah, that discussion kind of reminded me of um, when I attended, I think it was the Girls Rock Camp Association Conference. So um, like I volunteer with Girls Rock London, which is part of the wider um, Girls Rock movement. But um, yeah, when I went to conference, which would have been two years ago now, uh, the I think the theme of the weekend was actually Joy is a revolutionary force, and, um, yeah, that just felt really, like, relevant to kind of the discussion we're having and I guess the power in being able to just connect with people, even just through music, and it's something I've missed through playing live Um, because what you're talking about, that sense of, like, a dialogue first and as well, it always felt really palpable at our shows and... um, it felt, I guess, when you're on stage, it's kind of like you do, you literally have a captive audience and it always felt like it was our time to explain exactly what Big Journey is about, like the fact that we are a black feminist punk band and these are our principles and we created the band specifically to create a space where black women could bring their whole selves to the table and... I guess over the past few years, um, it's just been something that we've been able to share and people from whatever background have been able to, yeah, I guess, connect with us in some way. So that's something really missing. So I guess in the meantime, we're still, like, working on the same kind of stuff we've always been working on, and really, like, Shaleen's quite politically active. Um, Yeah, I'm still active with Girls Rock and me and Steph are... Um, have been involved with Decolonised Fest which is um, a festival in London that's run by punks of colour, four punks of colour and the collective behind that just put on an online festival and um, that was really successful and yeah and I guess one of the opportunities that has been brought um, since corona is thinking more about um, holding these online events that aren't just based um, geographically. So we were able to have like a huge panel on the Sunday that had projects from literally all over the world and all kinds of different time zones. So I think one person drew the short straw and was up at about four, but it was just cool to see how we all had these similar experiences. So yeah, I'm just glad we're still able to do stuff like that.
0: And are you guys working on another, I think you put something out in May, right? A single? Um, yeah, we've just released
2: um, a cover of Solange's Air "Cranes in the Sky um, with third man records. And then on the B side, we've got a live version of a track from Sisters called It's You. So it's a bit more raucous than maybe some people have been used to hearing on Sisters. Um, and yeah, that's something we had been playing live, I guess, um, over the past year and stuff. And, it always been really fun and it was good to be able to lay that down in the studio last year and finally kind of get it out there. But we're also, we've been back in the studio and we're working on album two, So right we'll be on. Seeing that in 2021. What
1: I found really incredible is like Big Joni's is part of this whole community here in London that is completely active, activist intellectually and also just like in the streets and you can, and, and that to me has been like one of the great things about living here is just discovering this this culture of bands um that are uh, compatriots of, of big johnny's and there's there's, a, there's there's quite a few of them and she talks about like a decolonized festival which a lot of the bands are involved with as as well as girls rock london and it's just there's there's a there's a few sort of uh, organizations that both that collaborate together and and do this work and con- com- always raising sort of uh consciousness and and so when you see big Joni in concert they talk about this on stage you know between songs you know and not in, not in like proselytizing in kind of like but they yeah. but it's just like they just like they 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 proffer this information and they and they and they show what their benign ideology is you know in in the face of this kind of and this is encroaching totalitarianism we have in the usa and um it's so important it's so important so i mean for us to just you know um have any kind of intimacy with with a band like big Joni is, is really really special
0: thank you guys
1: so much <laughs> <laughs> bye guys my name happens to be thurston moore and i'm here with rain phoenix i'm here with estella from big johnny and i am i have this privilege of launching the fall asleep video right here baby